Okay, so um, I'm setting my timer now. He does not know how long the timer is for, but the timer is for 15 minutes. Okay, and what's he doing? He's just, he smiled at us. <laughs> um, Robin, can we ask you what you think might happen in this scenario? Uh, he'll fall asleep. Absolutely. Can you tell us who you are? I am Robin. I work day in, day out with Adam McKay. Your, your main job is keeping him from falling asleep? <laughs> or waking him up from sleep. <laughs> From Gimlet Media, this is Surprisingly Awesome. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Adam McKay. Uh, The reason you heard our colleague Robin Woolley predicting that I was going to fall asleep is because the producers were experimenting on us. Uh, An experiment we did for the sake of today's topic. It's an exciting one. Get ready. Boredom. That's right. This may be our most meta show ever. This is a show about taking things that are boring and revealing them to be awesome. And so we went to boredom itself. It's got to exist for some reason. What what secret powers lay behind a, a much maligned subject, boredom? So we started thinking about boredom. And as we do with every topic on the show, we start Googling around. And the first guy who appears when you start Googling interesting things about boredom. Can I guess? Yeah. You know what used to bore the crap out of me as a kid was the comic strip Andy Cap. Oh, yeah. That's a bad one. That was really bad. Did that come up? That did not come up. Okay. But Andy Cap may have come up on this guy's blog because the guy we really wanted to talk to is named James Ward. And the blog he writes is called I Like Boring Things. So, obviously, that caught our eye. James Ward perfectly illustrates what it is we want to say about boredom. Being bored or just Being afraid that you might be bored, that is a huge limitation. It can block off entire sections of the world if we let it. And to help fight that tendency, James runs a conference called The Boring Conference. Originally, there was a similar event in London uh, organized by a guy called Russell Davis. And he did a thing called The Interesting Conference. Um, And then a couple of years ago, he tweeted that he was too busy with work, whatever. He didn't have time to organize the interesting conference that year. So it seemed like the obvious thing to do would be to hold a boring conference. The conference is amazing. It basically is surprisingly awesome meets TED Talks. James says their approach is that the theme of the conference is boring things, but the content should never bore anyone. So all year, he keeps a list of people who might be good presenters, people who are obsessed with barcodes or inkjet printers, people who record the sounds of vending machines. There's this one guy who keeps a written record of every time he sneezes. That sounds really boring. It's kind of this awesome, like, random view into someone's life. And all of these things help James develop a theory about boredom. There's a kind of split between what I call acceptable and unacceptable enthusiasms. Like in this country, obviously... Football, like soccer, is an enormous thing. So if you have two people in the pub and one of them's a Spurs fan or something, and he can name the lineup of every team that's played in the last 10 years, he's considered like a regular guy who knows his football. Whereas if the person that he's talking to says, 
oh, did you see the hand dryer that they've got in the toilets? And starts talking with the same level of enthusiasm and knowledge about the electric hand dryers, then he's considered weird. But the two people are doing exactly the same things. So what James is saying is there's no objective agreement, no universal acceptance of any topic being boring or not boring. It's cultural. It's personal. It's like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Like, McKay, you might not know this about me. I know you're a big sports fan. You really like basketball and football. I find those boring. What? Yeah. That is, I am aghast. I can't believe it. No, I know you hate sports. I know you find them boring. When I, I used to do a thing with the girls when they would be misbehaving at the house, you know, or being too rowdy or break something. I would say, okay, time to watch C-SPAN. And I would put C-SPAN on and make them watch C-SPAN for five minutes. They really did hate it. So, yeah, so so different things bore different people, interest different people. But being bored, it turns out, is a universal feeling. We all feel it. So we, we started, like, tying ourselves up in knots. What is boredom? What What is that? Is it an attribute of things outside in the world, like the Federal Reserve is boring, sports are boring, or is it an attribute of yourself? Is it a biological process? And we realized as we started asking these questions and talking to the experts, boredom is really interesting. At cocktail parties, you know, someone says, what do you do for your research? And you say, I study boredom. And they have this sort of nervous chuckle. And then they realize by looking at my face that they might have offended me. And so they say, oh, that must be very interesting. <laughs> this is James Dankert. He's a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University of Waterloo in Canada. It's a little confusing that in like less than 10 minutes, We've introduced two dudes named Adam and two dudes named James. Uh, but So can we call this one Dr. James? And we'll call the other one Boring Conference James? And you're... I'm, I'm Adam, and we'll call you uh, uh, Stevie. Well, I don't, I'm Adam. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to argue about this. Fine. You're Adam. I'm Adam. Let the listener be confused. We'll lose <laughs> hundreds of thousands of listeners because you won't be called Stevie. That's fine. So Dr. James has devoted his life to peering into our brains and seeing what is going on when we feel boredom. Here's how he defines it. So one of the sort of more colloquial terms that I would use to refer to boredom is as a, an aggressively dissatisfying state. That sort of uh, um, frustration that you feel at wanting something that you can't then satisfy, right? So if you think about the child that comes to its parent and says, I'm bored, and, you know, the parent typically will say, well, try this, and the kid says, no, you know, go ride your bike, no, go, go play basketball with your friends, no, go read a book, no. So you, you're in this conflict state where you really, really want something, but you're not really prepared to do the work to get there. So according to Dr. James, the ingredients of boredom is not knowing what to do next and feeling trapped by that. But it turns out, according to his research, some of us are way more susceptible to having that feeling than others are. And there's actually a way to test for it. He calls it the modified boredom proneness scale. It's basically a test of how easy it is to bore you. I love that you're excited because you heard there was a test. I got excited. The University of Chicago in you was like, there's a test. I am going to ace this test. I've always aced tests. I'm a great test taker. And our producer, Rachel Ward, helped proctor the test. What we would normally do is we'd ask you to sort of uh, um, answer this on a scale of one to seven. And so one is sort of strongly disagree and seven is strongly agree. Okay. So you ready? Yeah. I often find myself at loose ends, not knowing what to do. 
strongly disagree is one. Yeah. So I'd say one or two. I think that's fair. I'll provide a running commentary about yeah. whether or not he's being honest. Well, I think actually, it's interesting because when we talk about doing these kinds of things with people with um, traumatic brain injury, that one of the key questions or problems is that they don't often have insight into their own behavior. And so what we would normally do is we'd have them fill out the questionnaire and then have a caregiver fill out the questionnaire. So we can treat you as, as Adam's caregiver. Extremely accurate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, two, I, I find it hard to entertain myself. Definitely strongly disagree. One. Yeah, I, always, I find it very easy to entertain myself. I'm always like doing jokes and <laughs> finding stuff to entertain myself. Many things I have to do are repetitive and monotonous. Uh, one. All right. It takes more stimulation to get me going than most people. One. I don't feel motivated by most things that I do. One. One. In most situations, it is hard for me to find something to do or see to keep me interested. One. Much of the time, I just sit around doing nothing. Can I just answer for you and say one? Yes, <laughs> that's a definite one. <laughs> and the last one then, unless I'm doing something exciting, even dangerous, I feel half dead and dull. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely a one. <laughs> and then your score on this will be eight, which is the lowest possible score on the boredom prona scale that we use. I win. I got the lowest possible score. Well, I also took the test. And what was your score again, Adam? Eight. I got a seven. No, I just did one lower than yours, so yeah, I Yeah, it actually you. eight is the lowest. But. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I got a 13.5. All right. Let's just say we have roughly equal boredom <laughs> proneness. I think that I actually, I buy that. And one thing I notice about both of us is one reason we're never bored is we are really, really busy all of the time. Like I, in particular, I know I am never, ever, ever just sitting still, not doing anything. And a big reason for that is doing nothing really scares me. So I notice that every spare moment I get, if I don't have a pressing, crushing work deadline, I'm looking things up on my phone, I'm checking my Apple Watch. And so Dr. James and Rachel wanted to know, what would happen if I didn't have all those gadgets, all those defenses to fall back on? The ethics of this is questionable. Um, the thing that you need to do to make Adam bored is constraint. You need to put him in a circumstance where he can't do the things that he would like to do. So take away the handheld device, make him sit for some period of time without being able to uh, uh, engage in something. Right. I hate this idea. Do you see the calendar invite I just sent you? Wait, why'd you put in that? So while you were saying that, Rachel invited me on my calendar to spend an hour. Oh, an hour's a bit rich. Yeah. I mean, come on, just give him 15 minutes. Okay. I, I am definitely feeling increasing anxiety this very second. 15 minutes. I feel like we yeah. should do it for 45. Two hours. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> full work day, eight hours. We did not do this for a full work day because that would be crazy, but we did do it. I am about to be put in an empty, soundproof room for a period of time that I don't even know what the time is to gauge how bored I am. What is your level of anxiety as I prepare to send you into the box? Like a four. And anxiety. Anxiety, yeah, that's like a six or a seven. You ready to go in? Mm -hmm. Okay. I feel truly anxious. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. All right. All right. I'm going in. All right. Coming up after the break... Do we ever make it out of the box?
This is Surprisingly Awesome from Gimlet Media. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Adam McKay. Uh, When you last heard us, uh, we'd just been shoved into a box alone with no phones, no laptops, nothing to entertain us, just our cold, dark, lonely thoughts. Because we were experimenting with boredom. (laughs) I say boredom like that. It actually helps. sounds awesome. Boredom. 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 This week at the Worcester Armory, two straight days of boredom, boredom, boredom. So I was terrified going into the box. I really was. I mean, I really? Was, yeah, I was. I was worried. I felt like there was a chance that I would have a panic attack. A small chance, but I did think, hmm, am I going to have a panic attack? So I was really hesitant going into that room. And I have to say, it seems to me that our producers, Kalila Holt, Rachel Warden, Robert Woolley, They had a lot of pleasure locking us in a room with no cell phones, no devices of any kind. First, he sat down in a chair. He's been sitting, he sat in that chair for less than 10 seconds, and then he moved to a different chair. He's adjusting the chair. He's watching us watch him, which is pretty funny. He actually chose the same chair Davidson chose. Same position. He's in a, like, what I would think of as, like, a Ferris Bueller pose. Um, he's sitting actually very, fairly erectly in that chair. He's got his hands clasped together. It does kind of look like his eyes might be closed, though. Do you think he's falling asleep? I was going to say, he looks like he might be meditating. Half of his time has elapsed. He's doing well and proud. Yeah, I'm actually surprised. I thought he would pace. Like, that was my prediction. Oh, he is. He's put his hands on his head. And he's sort of moved away from Ferris Bueller towards, like, mild exasperation, I think. That's my interpretation. More, more of a Cameron now than a Ferris. <laughs> exactly. He has three minutes left. And he's essentially in the exact same position he's been in the entire time. He's, he crossed his legs. That's the only change. In a Ferris Bueller scenario, he'd be like the Sears Tower. All right. Should we rescue him or should we leave him in there for another 10 minutes? I guess we should probably tell him. (laughs) Okay. All right. That was fantastic. I could have done another half an hour. I want to do that every day. It was great. I loved it. It lowered my anxiety. I know this is a cliche. I know... You know, half our listeners are like, yeah, dude, you just sort of meditated. I My blood pressure went down, and it seemed like you had the exact same experience. Incredibly relaxing. Uh, the only thing I battled with was I really wanted to go to sleep. Um, that was it. I, I Two little flickers, like about three seconds each of boredom. But other than that, I found it completely relaxing. Yeah, I felt exactly the same way. I came out just feeling refreshed and relaxed. Um, And I realized, like, I'm so afraid of those flickers of boredom that I've structured my whole life so that I never, ever feel them. And when I didn't have a choice, I noticed they just pass. It's no big deal. My brain is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. James Dankert, the neurologist, told us this philosopher, Andreas Elpidoru, writes about this. 
So what boredom is for? Boredom's not meant to make you bored. It's meant to let you know that what you're doing now isn't working. Do something else. Like this, he uses a, a, what you would refer to as a pain metaphor, right? Pain isn't meant to hurt you. Pain is meant to get, spur you into action. So when you burn your hand, you withdraw it from the flame. It's a, a self-regulatory signal that says, you know what, what you're doing now isn't working for you. It's not good enough. So we actually did an okay job of self-regulating. We got stripped of our devices, left alone with our thoughts, which we thought was going to suck. But then our natural defenses against boredom kicked in, and we wound up using the time productively. I'm proud of us. I'm really proud of us. I feel like hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution led to us having the ability to handle 15 minutes alone in a room. That makes it sound a lot less impressive. Oh, really? Yeah, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, I thought, you know, allowed us to create medical devices and drugs. But no, it allowed us to sit in a... Fairly comfortable chair. (laughs) Without crying. (laughs) Without crying. All right. I'll take it, I guess. It's pretty good. All right. Um, I want to shift the conversation to another aspect of boredom, which might actually be way more important than sitting in a room for 15 minutes. The idea that boredom, it's not just an internal, intimate, personal feeling. It's its a, a feeling that has huge implications about your place in society at large. But it's a signal that we as a society are woefully bad at paying any attention at all. In fact, if you want to know where to look, you need a specialist. I am basically an undercover anthropologist, and I've always been absolutely consumed by a desire to understand the other. And I've done that first in Pakistan and then Tibet and then Tajikistan, the city of London financial community. Um, I'm now operating in New York. This is Gillian Tett. She's the U.S. managing editor of the Financial Times. It's also called the FT. Gillian has been covering the world of financial markets. A lot of people would say that's the most boring thing in the world. And she's been doing this for a couple decades. But unlike most of her colleagues, she's an anthropologist and views the world through the lens of her hero, this French anthropologist and sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. He did fieldwork in rural France as the country was really changing after World War II. One of the things he noticed was that when the villagers in the village where he lived got together to dance, there was a kind of very striking pattern of exclusion, which was in 1950s, the young men and women who wore trendy clothes and worked in the city all danced with each other. And that was where all the attention and focus was put on. But around the edges of the dance hall, there were all these bachelors, these people who didn't dance or couldn't dance, who were still quite young, but considered to be so completely uncool that they were almost unmarriageable. The reason why they weren't dancing was because essentially the wider economy had changed in a way that meant that the bachelors who were primarily farmers, they couldn't get married because their economic value had plummeted because all of the economic activity was moving to the cities. So the kind of pattern you saw at the dance hall was really reflecting and reinforcing a wider political economic pattern. This idea became really important to Gillian, the idea that we're always looking at the people in the center of the room dancing. We're looking at the sexy, exciting thing. Right, but if you turn your focus from all the stuff going on in the middle to the margins— you notice that these people, who you kind of thought were too boring to pay attention to, 
these like farmers, these bumpkins, there's actually a really interesting story there. It's just like what James Ward, the boring conference organizer, was talking about. Knowing a lot about sports, that's cool in our culture. Yeah, that's like bang, boom, sports. Was that a good definition of sport? It was terrible. <laughs> it yeah, really? It sounded like someone who'd never seen a sporting <laughs> event. Really but, but keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, but knowing a lot about public restroom hand dryers, that's embarrassing. That's lame. That's a lot like being a country bumpkin at the dance, not the flashy dancer in the middle of the room. There's often a really big story in the things we consider boring, the things we consider unworthy of serious attention. And Bourdieu pointed out, if you delve deep into the shadows of the boring, it can reveal so much about how power and economics work in a society. Essentially, what he did was try to understand the spoken and unspoken cultural rules and patterns that shape our lives and shape the way that we think and act, and also, above all else, because he was quite political, maintain the hierarchy or the elite in their positions of power. And Bourdieu's key point was that the things that we ignore in life, the stuff that we label as boring and dull and simply uncool and too humdrum to actually talk about, they're often crucial in terms of maintaining the social order and reproducing the power structure. And Bourdieu has a term, by the way, for this. Are you ready, McKay, for the word I learned from Jillian Ted? I love it. Let's hear it. Doxa. It's an old Greek word, but Bourdieu used it in a new technical way. Jillian can define it. The field, the space of accepted discussion. And he argued that in any society, there are things that are viewed as the acceptable um, topics of discussion. So like the people in the center of the room, the thing that everyone's looking at, the thing that you can say, wow, she's really cute, or that guy's a great dancer, that's the doxa, that's the acceptable discussion. The people on the outskirts, they're the boring ones. So doxa is the field of accepted interest outside the doxas. Eh, that's boring. That's silly. So similar to how when the OJ trial was going on, the entire country was transfixed. Meanwhile, Clinton signs NAFTA and gets rid of Glass-Steagall, uh, signs that crime bill, all these major pieces of legislation that changed America in giant, giant ways. But what were most people talking about Judge Ito and the glove. And so that would be the doxa. It's actually very cool. I like the word doxa, too. Yeah, you should drop that into conversation. I definitely have to. The doxa thing brings us to something you and I know really well, something that is, in fact, the reason we got to work together, how we became friends, how this podcast started, which is the financial crisis of 2007, mm -hmm. 2008. It happened and quickly became everyone's doxa because we were all being affected by it. But before that was, you know, probably about 38th on the list of things that most people were talking about. And I just found that fascinating. I just started wondering, like, what was our culture telling us? What is our 24-hour media telling us is important and how accurate is this? And you and I kept talking about that dynamic. What are we being told is important versus what are we being told is boring? And we kept discovering that the boring subject many times was by far the most important subject. And what Jillian explained is even in the heart of finance, even there, their doxa was putting the key elements of what would eventually almost destroy the global economy. That was outside of the doxa. The doxa said mortgages are secure, they're boring. And 
in a sense, the movie that you wrote and directed, The Big Short, is all about the weirdos who were hanging out on the edges of the docks and saying, no, no, I'm, it's really important. These were the guys who were keeping track of their sneezes, basically. There's a version of The Big Short where Jillian is the star because she, well, she didn't fully call the crisis, but she did do this really cool counterintuitive thing way before anybody else knew there was something fishy going on in the financial markets. I would never say that I predicted what was going to happen in 2007. But what I did notice um, starting in 2004 was that there was a lot that was being ignored. Everyone was obsessively talking about the equity market and just ignoring this vast shadowy credit market and derivatives market, even though that was getting bigger and bigger. So I likened it to an iceberg where you had a small piece of the system poking above the water that was readily reported on and discussed. And the vast shadowy underbelly that was being ignored because it was being labeled as boring. And I became kind of obsessed in trying to pierce it and expose it and show it what was going on there um, to varying degrees of success. So I have to say, Jillian Tett is like amazing, but I do disagree with her on something. I buy the Doxa story. I think that's a real thing. But I also think that people particularly when it comes to Wall Street, to financial regulation, they weaponize boredom. I'm not saying this whole financial crisis was caused by boredom, but I think that there is a lot of deliberate use of complex, difficult financial products so that government won't pay attention, the media won't pay attention. Oh, I think there's no question. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I love the phrase weaponize boredom. So how do we deal with the fact that many of the most important aspects and elements of our lives are designed to bore us in new submission so that we don't question them or challenge them? So does Bourdieu offer a solution is there something we can do to... What he really believed in, which is kind of what I believed in, is that nine-tenths of your job as an academic or as a journalist is to try and get people to talk and think. And the more that you can get people to talk and think about the conditions of their lives, um, the less the chance that they will end up acting like mindless robots. Doesn't always work, often doesn't work. But if you can make just one person think and question some of the fabric and tenets of their lives then at least some of these unconscious patterns or these conscious patterns, if you want to see it that way, can be challenged. So hearing this actually made me feel really good about our show. We are all about getting people to stop, look at something that they weren't paying a lot of attention to, and think about it and see it in a new way. And when we first started the show, we set about doing this in a really straightforward, linear way way. McKay is really stoked about something. I'm bored by it. So he spends the episode trying to convince me it's interesting or the other way around. But then a whole bunch of listeners told us they do not like that. Do you have, can you recall the letter like in your email? Would you be willing to read a little bit of it? Sure. Let me pull it up. So this is a surprisingly awesome listener, Shelley Vineyard. Our co-host Rachel Ward and I talked with her about a letter she wrote. She hated that we set up the show by saying the topic was boring. Yeah, so um, it seems like you're ambivalent about your audience. Is your audience people who think that things are boring and need to be convinced otherwise? Or is it people who love learning about things that other people think are boring? Uh, it's a really good question. Um, and we didn't really think it through as far as, you know, targeting and marketing. 
Um, but, you know, the early days of the show, we, we kept hearing these complaints uh, that, you know, we said things were boring too often. I actually didn't agree with the complaints. I, I think there are people out there that are naturally curious, and that's okay. You could ignore the part where we say something's boring. But I also think there's a large part of the audience for whom some of this stuff is boring. And by acknowledging it, it lets them relax. So we've had arguments about this. Yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing thing. And I don't feel like we've figured it out fully yet. I think we're still playing with this. Although Shelly did, like, where, where she kind of touched me and just that word boring. The thing you're interested in is boring. I grew up in a small town in Texas and like I basically tried to do as much as possible in the high school, like be as involved in everything, but still felt like kind of ostracized or limited. And as soon as I got to college, it felt like really freeing to be able to be enthusiastically interested in things and to find lots of other people who are too. <laughs> See, I think our show is sticking up for her. I think what we're saying is the word boring is not a bad word. We're saying the word boring is propaganda. We're saying the word boring is a lie and push past it. I completely agree. We here at Surprisingly Awesome are celebrating boring. I love that feeling of hearing something that my initial reaction is, oh, that's going to be so boring. And then finding out it's awesome. I like to think of myself as someone who can go through that journey. That, to me, is the spirit of the show. I mean, to be honest, I'd love it if we could subvert the doxa and do something profound. But what I really hope for this show, what I really want us to accomplish, is that we just trigger that rush, that moment at least sometimes, for at least some people, whether it's the kind of boredom Jillian told us about, the big political boring, or the kind that James pointed out, the smaller, more intimate opening yourselves up to the world, we want to fight against the feeling of boredom and find out what's underneath it or behind it or whatever. Because for me, once you do that, it actually makes the world feel a whole lot richer. I agree. That is exactly why we do this. And uh, and worst case scenario, if maybe we don't achieve that spark of excitement for many listeners, at the least, I would love it if in the future, the band Megadeth made an album called Subvert the Doxa. <laughs> Subvert the Doxa sounds awesome. Surprisingly Awesome's theme song is by Nicholas Bertel, or as I call him, Little Nicky Bertel. Our ad music is by Build Buildings. We were edited this week by Alex Bloomberg and Annie Rose Strasser. We were produced by Rachel Ward and Kalila Holt. David Herman mixed the show, and then Matthew Ball came along and messed it up. Jacob Cruz, Isabel Angel, and Robin Woolley provided production assistance. Original music in this episode was written by Nick Dupre and Louis Weeks. Special thanks to Peter Tui at the University of Calgary, Richard Wolf at the New School, and Mary Mann, author of the upcoming book Yawn. Jillian Tetz, very good book, is The Silo Effect, The Peril of Expertise and the Promise of Breaking Down Barriers. A cavalcade of delights awaits our newsletter subscribers. Every other Friday, we send out premium facts that we weren't able to get into our latest episode. Uh, like for example, did you know that concrete is an important part of a healthy pigeon diet? It helps them digest. But for this week's newsletter facts, you have to sign up. 
Go to gimletmedia.com slash awesome. It's down on the lower right. You can also tweet at us at Surprising Show. Email us at surprisinglyawesome at gimletmedia.com. We're on Facebook, and our Tumblr is true shark attack stories.tumblr.com. And if you're a true friend of the show, uh, consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Surprisingly Awesome is a production of Gimlet Media. Hey, can I ask you, some of my British friends say boring, more like annoying, like, oh, I lost cell service. Oh, that's boring. Yeah, I I guess it can be used in that sort of sense of just like the inevitable frustration of a failed signal or bad 3G or something. Is that associated with like a certain like tribe of people? I guess it's probably the same sort of people who describe lots of things as being random when they're not random, they're at best arbitrary. (laughs) 